I thought there would be no better way than to start off a study in the Gospel of Luke with Dr. Seuss. This has a purpose, so bear with me. Don't tune this out. This is meaningful. Dr. Seuss, his story called The Sneetches. Now, the star belly sneetches had bellies with stars. The plain belly sneetches had none upon theirs. Those stars weren't so big. They were really so small, you might think such a thing wouldn't matter at all. But because they had stars, all the star belly sneetches would brag, were the best kind of sneetch on the beaches. With their snoots in the air, they would sniff and they'd snort. We'll have nothing to do with the plain belly sort. And whatever and whenever they met some, when they were out walking, they'd hike right on past them without even talking. When the star belly children went out to play ball, could a plain belly get in the game? Not at all. You only could play if your bellies had stars, and the plain belly children had none upon theirs. When the star belly sneeches had frankfurter roasts or picnics or parties or marshmallow toasts, they never invited the plain belly sneeches. They left them out cold in the dark of the beaches. They kept them away, never let them come near, and that's how they treated them year after year. Then one day, it seems, while the plain belly sneeches were moping and doping along the beaches, just sitting there wishing their bellies had stars, a stranger zipped up in the strangest of cars. My friends, he announced in a voice clear and king, my name is Sylvester McMonkey McBean, and I've heard of your troubles. I've heard you're unhappy, but I can fix that. I am the fix it up chappy. I've come here to help you. I've, I have what you need, and my prices are low, and I work at great speed. And my work is 100% guaranteed. Then, quickly, Sylvester McMonkey McBean put together a very particular machine. And he said, you want stars like a star belly sneech? My friends, you can have them for $3 each. Just pay me your money and hop right aboard. So they clambered inside. Then the big machine roared, and it clonked, and it bonked, and it jerked, and it burked, and it bopped them about. But the thing really worked. When the plain belly sneeches popped out, they had stars. They actually did. They had stars upon theirs. Then they yelled out at all the ones who had stars at the start, We're exactly like you. You can't tell us apart. We're all just the same now, you snooty old smarties. And now we can go to your Frankfurter parties. Good grief, groaned the ones who had stars at the first. We're still the best Nietzsche's on, and they are still the worst. But now, how in the world will we know? They all frowned. If which kind is what, or the other way round? Then up came McBean with a very sly wink, and he said, Things are not quite as bad as you think. So you don't know who's who? That is perfectly true. But come with me, friends. Do you know what I'll do? I'll make you, again, the best Nietzsche's on beaches, and it all will cost you, and all it will cost you is $10 eaches. 
Belly stars are no longer in style, said McBean. What you need is a trip through my star off machine. This wondrous contraption will take off your stars so you won't look like sneeches who have them on theirs. And that handy machine worked very precisely, removed all the stars from their tummies quite nicely. Then with snoots in the air, they paraded about and they opened their beaks and they let out a shout. We know who is who. Now there isn't a doubt. The best kind of sneeches are sneeches without. <laughs> then, of course, those with stars all got frightfully mad. To be wearing a star now was frightfully bad. Then, of course, old Sylvester McMonkey McBean invited them into his star off machine. Then, of course, from then on, as you probably guess, Things really got into a horrible mess. All the rest of that day, on those wild, screaming beaches, the fix-it-up chappy kept fixing up sneeches. Off again, on again, in again, out again. Through the machines they raced, round and about again, changing their stars every minute or two. They kept paying money. They kept running through until neither the plane nor the star bellies knew whether this one was that one or that one was this one or which one was what one or what one was who. Then, when every last cent of their money was spent, the fix-it-up chappy packed up, and he went. And he laughed as he drove in his car up the beach. They will never learn. No, you can't teach a sneech. But McBean was quite wrong. I'm happy to say that the sneeches got really quite smart on that day. The day they decided that sneeches are sneeches and no kind of sneech is the best on the beaches. That day, all the sneeches forgot about stars and whether they had one or not upon thars. It is true that what we really want, what we're really made for is a connection. We want to belong. We were made to have relationship we were made to feel inside, not outside. Although the, the problem is, is if you're like me at all, we often feel like misfits. We feel like outsiders. We feel like the kind of sneech, if you will, that has a plain belly. While there are those that go around with stars on bars. And we feel inferior. And that's the point. People like to make us feel misfit and we don't like to feel misfit and there's this whole tension because what we long for and what we truly 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 need is not to be our own man not to be our own island not to be self-sufficient independent but to be connected to be related to belong to be with to be the one with the star or more like we should see humanity without stars or not right and so humanity wants to get to this place of belonging but it's a very complicated process because as i look at the world and i look at history and i look at what's happening in the context of luke and jesus and israel and the gentiles and the world i'm struck by the fact that it seems to me that humanity is like a huge puzzle now puzzles 
come with pieces, each of them cut uniquely, some with arms sticking out and little notches sticking in. And you got to find the right pieces, right? So that the arm goes into the notch and the notch receives the arm just right so that they fit. And then when you get everything to fit together, then what you see as you step back from the puzzle is a picture or a painting or some sort of image that the puzzle was meant to show you once it all came together, right? But if you have ever worked on a puzzle, and unless you're a genius or something, but if you're like me, uh, when you work on a puzzle, it doesn't come together very easily. In fact, it's quite a messy, complicated process, isn't it? You're, You're looking at all of these random separate pieces of the puzzle, and you're looking at their weird shapes, and you're trying to find ones that match, and then you're flipping it over, and you're looking at this some black fuzz there. What what does that go to? And then there's it looks like there's an eyeball. Is that a man or a dog? I don't. And you're trying to make sense of all this, right? But then eventually, as you hand each one in carefully and inspect it, you begin to find pairs. You begin to find matches, right? And you're like, oh, the black fuzzy thing. There's a tail over here. And oh, look, they fit. Oh, I think this is a cat starting to come together. Tonight. Oh, yeah, here's a head. Oh, yeah, that one fits there. And you start to cluster, right? So we got a few pieces here. We got a cat. They're like, this one's red. That doesn't go with the cat. This one has a tire. Uh, And then you start piecing it. Some red ones over here. uh, Some green ones here. And then you begin to add more, right? And then it's like, oh, the red one, this is a bicycle. And oh, the green ones, this is a tree. And oh, the white ones over here are clouds. And, And so you begin to get these little pairs and matches and connections of puzzle pieces here and there, right? And eventually, if you don't give up, if someone doesn't need the coffee table or whatever, (laughs) then you will get to see the picture in its entirety. But as I look at humanity, I see exactly that, the process of the puzzle. I see that there are the green collection over here, the people that fit together, like we like the tree and we like the bike and the cat and the cloud. And there's clusters of humanity. But as you're working on your puzzle, there's also gaps between these clusters because you're thinking, I think the cloud obviously goes to the top. The cat's on the ground over here. The tree's over here. And you're, you're working on them and they're separate from each other. It's almost like you've created little cults or little clubs of puzzle pieces and they don't talk to each other yet. They're, they're separate. They're divorced. They've got this space between them. And then, worse than that, is that you've got this whole pile. And if you're smart, it's not a pile, but it's actually laid out all around of just individual little pieces of the puzzle. You call them misfits. They're outsiders. They don't have anywhere to go yet. And it's not until you begin to expand the puzzle that you're like, oh, this one goes here. But there's a large, I feel like most of the time you're working on a puzzle, most of them are misfits and you've only got slow progress. And, and that's, that's the state of humanity. That's, that's where we're at. We all have arms, we all have notches, and we're meant to interlink and connect, to receive and to give and to, to have oneness, have relationship, have belonging. But in our seeking for that, we tend to cluster around the ones that fit well, and we stay away from the ones that don't fit very well. And unfortunately, many of us and many other people in the world, they're in that stack of ones you don't know what to do with yet. They're the misfits. They're the ones that haven't found a place. They haven't found their belonging in the puzzle, in this overall picture that God has painted of creation and humanity. 
And so we have there the picture of exclusion, right? Of this, we don't fit with you. We don't get along with you. We'll keep our distance. And you guys don't quite belong in here yet. All you misfits. And perhaps you've been excluded. You're, you're like a snitch without a star on your belly. And you feel like you're that outsider. You're that misfit. Or you know somebody who is. Why is it that if we yearn for belonging and connectedness, that exclusion yet still prevails over thousands of years? How is that possible that the thing we yearn for most, we are worse at producing? Well, exclusion looks like this. There's a couple of ways that it can look like. There's some obvious forms and there's some not so obvious forms. And the first, probably the most obvious form is the elimination. Exclusion is often a form of elimination. You don't like these people. They don't quite fit your crowd. They're, they're, they're not the right type. So you choose to cast them out. You choose to intentionally bar their participation with what you're doing. You're not going to be part of this. And both sides know it. And it's this feeling of superiority and inferiority. Very similar to elimination is assimilation. It's almost the opposite, but it's the same thing really at heart. Elimination is this great severance between people. Assimilation is where both parties make a deal. And the superior one tells the inferior one, we won't vomit you out if you let us swallow you up. And so the superior one makes an uh, inferior one assimilate into them so that basically their personality, their identity becomes absorbed and they disappear. It may be worse than elimination. Then there's the slander and enslave, the classic slander and slave, like Disney's Pocahontas, right? The New England settlers come and there's Indians and they want the land for gold, which doesn't really exist there, but they want it anyways. And you remember this, if you get, you've all raised kids before, right? You've probably seen the movie. They, they sing the song, savages, savages. They're barely even human. That's how the song goes. And so they, they basically slander the Indians and cause the people to believe they're not human. They're savages. They're a danger. So let's, let's enslave them. Let's get rid of them. Let's do whatever we can. And so that justifies a whole people for thinking, okay, we're going to exclude this people group so that we can get what we want. Or in the more recent Disney film, Wreck-It Ralph, how all the little guys in the video game, I'm sorry if you haven't seen it. I don't know if I'm talking your language, but they're all the little guys in the video game. They're the good guys. Ralph is the bad guy in the video game. And so they all get together and they're like, Ralph is a monster. And even at their parties, Ralph's sitting there watching and he's like, I want to be in a party. And they don't want him there. And they, on the birthday cake, they paint Ralph's face like a monster. Like that's how they talk about Ralph to justify the fact that he doesn't belong with us. And it's right for us to exclude him. He's a monster and he will hurt us. That's the slander and enslave. And then third, there's the ignore option of exclusion. And this happens all the time. We're just not always aware of it. But where you don't necessarily act cruel to somebody, you just completely pretend they don't exist. We do this almost frequently with the third world countries. America likes to pretend the problems don't exist. If we don't acknowledge them, then we won't have to address their problem. And so we ignore. That is exclusion. Very sad but true story is 
Some time ago, I was at a youth camp, and um, I saw students all gathered in a circle, and they're with their youth pastor, and they're, they're having, like, a, it seems like a really good time. They're joking and sharing stories and laughing, and um, I watched them all, like, this, this, I think, how cool, like, there's this unity, there's this, there's this vibe, there's this thing going, they're all connected, but as I looked closer, I realized that this was actually a very sad picture. Because as they're circled around having the greatest time of their life, there was a student on the outside of the circle wanting inside, but no one even noticed her. No one even saw her. That's exclusion. So exclusion is very real. It exists in the world. And one of its main problems is, is that if God created us with a unique shape so that we would fit with other people and their shape and come together and form the collage of what he's created, then exclusion is the act of decreating, of deconstructing, of destroying God's creation and his universe. Humanity is not reflecting the creator. They're reflecting anti-creation behavior as they exclude one another. They're taking the the notch and the arm in each piece of the puzzle and they're sanding it completely off. They're filling in the notch with themselves and they're taking the arm off so that it looks more like, oh, where we got the trees all clustered here, that's a complete puzzle. And the cloud is a complete puzzle. There's no notch. There's no arm to connect anywhere else. They have completed the circle. They've closed it. They said, we're good on our own. And they're actually severing and breaking up the picture God has made. It's decreation. So if, if we are not created for this, and it's evil, and it seems to be such a bad thing, this exclusion, then why does exclusion happen? Why has it prevailed for so many years? Quite simply, we're obsessed with ourselves. We exclude because exclusion protects ourselves. This one's probably the most common in our minds because you see this in churches and other religions. We exclude people to protect ourselves. We have a good thing going with our church. We've got moral people that believe the right things. So if we keep the wrong people out, we will be safe and protected. We also exclude to empower ourselves. Sort of like these, the, new, the New England settlers and the Native Americans, they wanted resources. They wanted stuff that the Indians had. So what do they do? They exclude them. This is for self-empowerment or control is very limited. So the strong exclude the weak and they gather all the, the power, the control to leverage it against the weak, to control them. So there's, there's to protect ourselves, there's to empower ourselves. We also exclude to please ourselves. We're very insecure people when we come down to it. We all want a sense of self-worth. And like the star-bellied sneeches in Dr. Seuss's story, when other people get a star too, we can't stand that they are now like us. Why? Because now my privileged position where I found my self-worth has been stripped away and they're just like me and now I'm no longer special. So they had to take the stars off their bellies in order to cause more distinction, more separation, more exclusion. Why? Because now, once again, we're the chosen ones. They're not. That's why exclusion happens. We have to feel this sort of level of specialness, of chosenness, of we're different than everybody in a better way. 
So that's exclusion. And that takes us right up to the time of Jesus in the book of Luke. Because this is Judaism as expressed during the time of Jesus. They were the people walking around in a Gentile world, walking around as if they had the stars on their bellies, as if they were the best Nietzsche's in all the world. They had the one true God of the universe, the maker of heaven and earth. They had the Torah given directly from God's mouth to Moses' pen to us on our parchment. It is God's very word, and we are the guardians of all the world of the Torah, right? We are the ones promised to Abraham to save the world. We are going to inherit the Messiah. We are going to rule the nations with a rod of iron one day, just whenever the Messiah finally gets here. They thought they were the cool kids on the block. And what they did in order to establish this exclusive specialness is that they emphasized four points of their um, ethnic identity and religious culture. They emphasized the, the, the very four that would intentionally exclude the other people around them. So what are they? Well, they elevated the fact that they worship one God while the rest of the world worshiped many gods. They exalted the fact that they circumcised their male children while the rest of the Gentile and Greek world did not circumcise their children. They, they glorified the fact that they keep the Sabbath on the seventh day. All the rest of the world didn't keep the Sabbath on the seventh day. And they glorified finally, fourthly, the fact that they have a special dietary plan. They only eat, quote, clean foods. They definitely don't eat pig. While the Greeks and the Romans, the Gentile world, they ate pig. They ate lots of foods the Jews don't. And so on these four points, the Jews saw themselves as completely different and separate from all of the rest of the world. And this became a source of pride. This became a source of we are better. We have God's law and you are not like us. And that's why we're going to see as we go through the gospel of Luke, you're going to see Jesus and the Pharisees clash. And much of the time, the clash is going to be over the fact that they're making, the Pharisees are making a bigger deal about those four points than they should because their purpose for making a big deal of those points is to keep other people outside of their purified, clean religion. And Jesus is saying, you are not being inclusive. Some of these things can, you're not using them in the proper way. They're being used in an exclusive way, not in an inclusive way. So Luke, what he is doing in this gospel, um, it's, it's believed that he wrote after Mark, which is why we studied Mark first, way back at Easter. Luke, it seems, had Mark's gospel in front of him because there are, um, oh, this is off the top of my head now, but there's some hundreds of verses that exactly mirror Mark. And the overall structure of the book mirrors Mark's. It's as if Luke used some of Mark as an idea board. And then he used a lot of interviews to write this gospel. And so what Luke does is he has a very special message that he emphasizes that Mark did not emphasize. And he's addressing this very problem of who's the best snitch on the beach. Exclusion, inclusion, the least, the last, the lost. See, while Judaism 
was excluding the least, last, and lost. Luke writes his gospel to encourage Jesus' followers to include and to love the least, last, lost. The least, last, and lost is, a, is just a common, it's just, you know, really neat, neat sounding phrase that encapsulates everyone Judaism did not allow into their inner circle of religiosity. And namely, well, I'm sure you know one already. Gentiles, not allowed. They don't follow the four points of our, you know, the four glorified points. Gentiles, no way, Jose. Exclude them. Second, Samaritans. They saw them as just as close to Gentiles as anyone can be. Samaritans are not allowed. But guess what Luke does? Luke writes more about Samaritans than any other gospels. Actually, more than the other gospels combined. Luke has tons to say about Samaritans. You'll, you'll um, learn about the parable of the good Samaritan. What's the purpose of that? To glorify the Samaritan in front of exclusive Jews. You'll hear about the, the ten lepers that got healed and the one that came back to thank Jesus. What was he? A Samaritan. Luke continues to show that the Samaritans aren't quite all as bad as the Jews made them out to be. They also excluded women. And Jesus was all about letting the women have their place. He was pro-women. He was pro-giving them a place in society, a place in his mission. Um, this is not necessarily the same thing as feminism in our Western culture, where uh, they do want women to have power and rights, right? And I think Jesus would be all for that, but it's also driven by much stronger um, agenda basically let's take over the man world and i don't know that that's necessarily biblical i don't think god wants either to take over either but luke is very concerned with women and their place in the kingdom of god and so we're going to see luke has a ton to say about women and whenever he would tell a parable about a man more often than not it will be followed by a parable about a woman See how Luke is trying to equalize the playing field. You're also going to see um, Mary and Martha and this distinction between Martha in the kitchen and Mary at the feet of Jesus. Mary didn't belong at the feet of Jesus. That was the men's room. That was where the men were sitting. And so one thing Luke's going to do is say, Jesus favored women coming into the men's room. They belong there too. And so Luke is about caring for those, the least, last, lost, Gentiles, Samaritans, women. Um, you also have tax collectors and common workers. So we're going to see the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee, the ones that prayed in the temple. And who was the right prayer? Not the religious exclusive Pharisee, but the tax collector. Reaching out to the least, last, and lost again. And common workers like shepherds, like fishermen, they were considered least, last, and lost. And Luke is asking... To, the church to love them. And then finally, of course, you have sinners, a general, very broad term, which we'll talk about someday. And then you have um, the poor. And Luke has a lot to say about the poor. Judaism believed that riches were a blessing from God. So if you were poor, you were obviously doing something wrong. And therefore, the poor were very much so excluded from the religious circle. They were the least, last, lost. And Luke and Jesus have lots of affection for the poor. So those are some of the things you're getting yourself into if you indeed choose to come to Sunday Night Bible Study Weekly. Be ye warned. Luke, I really do believe, is challenging us to think about the marginalized 
to exterminate exclusion, to, as the message is called tonight, create room for the misfits. I know the bulletin says something different, but I changed it three times this morning. So, so Luke wants us to create room for the misfits. Now your question, my question is, all right, what's he going to say right off the bat? Don't worry, we're getting to Luke. What's he going to say right off the bat? How is he going to tell us to do this? Well, to answer that fully, to love the least, last, and lost, this is a Luke and Acts deal. We got to look at all of it to see the broad answer. But tonight, Luke tells us how to kick it off. The first step everybody needs. And so let's look at that. How does Luke want us to create room for the misfits? So we're going to look at five characters that Mark, uh, excuse me, that Luke puts at the very beginning of his gospel, five characters who demonstrate loving the least, last, and lost. And before we get into that, uh, I love, I love, I love introducing books. I can spend a whole night just introducing the book of Luke and everything you're going to see and how the, the literary structure works and the narrative, how it flows and what he's doing with everything. I could talk to you guys forever on that. Um, but I'm not because some of you don't like dates and I understand like, there's a lot of like, okay, just tell me something about life. And so we're going to do that instead of tonight. So what I did do is in the, in the tables back here, if you don't know, that's the resource section. Um, I made what I, I've, I've taught through the book of Luke previously in classes. So I have a whole nine page, um, packet on an introduction to Luke and if you're like really into that, go ahead and grab one. It's back there. A nice nine page packet about all the details on Luke. What's that? It's moved over here. They're on. Okay. They're on both tables then. So go ahead and grab that if you're interested. All right, let's get into Luke chapter one. We're looking at five characters who did love the least, last and lost. And then once we look at these five, we're going to deduce from them what it is Luke is saying we need to do or be or have or whatever in order to become lovers of the least, last and lost. So let's go. Luke chapter one. As you know from our Christmas, our annual Christmas holiday, Luke chapter one is about Zechariah who's this priest in the temple, an angel comes up to him and says, you're going to have a son and he's going to be great. It's John the Baptist. And then um, in verse 26, the angel Gabriel, so the angels are very busy at the season, appears to Mary and says, you're going to have a kid and he is going to be greater than John. He's going to be Jesus. He's going to be the son of God. And then... Both Elizabeth, who's pregnant, and Mary, who is just told she's going to be pregnant. They're super excited, and they come together. So Mary goes to visit Elizabeth, and this is what we read. So our first character is Elizabeth. Elizabeth, and we look at her at chapter 1, verse 39. In those days, 139, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to the town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby in her womb leapt. 
And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And so Mary flies up, I'm pregnant and it's going to be the Messiah. I can't believe this. And she shares all this with Elizabeth and Elizabeth is happy for her. Elizabeth actually says the baby left in her womb as she received Mary into her house. Now, we often think, yeah, cool. They're family members. Big deal. Like we receive people all the time. But because of our great Christmas tradition, we often overlook the fact that this was an amazing act of inclusion by Elizabeth. Pretend you don't know anything about the angel visitation, that the angel told Mary that the Holy Spirit will come upon her and that she will miraculously have a virgin conception and that that child will be the son of God. Forget all of that. Pretend you're just a commoner in Israel and you know that Mary is not yet married to Joseph. So they haven't had, you know, their husband wife thing together yet, but they're betrothed. And it's in a culture that is very strict on, you know, purity, all purity laws, especially sexual purity. And all of a sudden, knowing they're not married, why is Mary showing? Why is she pregnant? Now, can you imagine how she tried to explain that? How would that sound to you? Wait wait a minute. Okay. You're pregnant and you're claiming you haven't slept with anybody. Uh-huh. Right. Uh, oh, who told you? Oh, an angel. Oh, what was it? Gabriel? Oh, that's a nice name you made up. And, you know, like, what did the angel tell you? Oh, really? Can you imagine how ludicrous that would sound? And you know the human heart. It isn't all wondrous. God visited you and there's this miraculous conception. It's more like, ha, I knew she was bad news from the beginning. I knew, I told you, didn't I tell you? Children, don't hang out with Mary. That's the human heart. And that's how Mary's treated. And now in a society where respect is everything too, Elizabeth has the audacity. She takes the risk of allowing this promiscuous woman to come into her household And to be associated with her. And when she should be shunning Mary. That's what society would want her to do. She embraces Mary. And brings her into her home. And here's the very first sign of Luke. Showing us what it looks like to follow Jesus. It's to love. And to embrace and include. The least. Like Mary. The last. The lost. Number two. Mary herself. So in chapter two, well, the end of chapter one is a couple songs. And if you want more on that, at Christmas last year, I did a message on the sound of Christmas. And we looked at all the singing in Luke. So you can grab a CD of that. Um, But since we've covered that, we're going to move on to chapter two. And chapter two is the birth of Jesus Christ. And in verse eight, we have the classic Christmas reading. So remember, our second character here is Mary. Two verse eight. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. There's, there's Luke's preaching right there. All the pe- this news is for all the people, not just Israel, all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. 
You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those whom he is pleased. More singing. Verse 15. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. So once again... Due to the Christmas tradition, we can't imagine the nativity scene without shepherds. They've become an integral part of that scene. And so we think all the shepherds, we love the shepherds being their little lambs and the little, the little staff. And, you know, sometimes kids play one of the sheep and it's hilarious in the plays or whatever. And, and everyone wants to be a shepherd and wear a beard and be this rough, like live in the wilderness kind of man and smell like sheep. And, but what we don't realize is that in that time, Shepherds were not cute people. They were actually considered a motley crew. And they were often disrespected. Nobody respected shepherds. Nobody trusted shepherds. Shepherds were wanderers. And the shepherds would often wander into your backyard, let their sheep lay their stuff and eat the food, your lawn, and move on without leaving you a dime. And like, I hate shepherds, right? And then they were also known, at least rep, the reputation was that they were crooks and that they would steal things. So, that, you know, when they're sitting on your field, they might, I don't know, take all the apples out of your apple tree or something. And, and so shepherds just had a bad reputation, a bad rap. And worst of all, because of the nature of their work, well, they did smell too, but they were not permitted access into the temple due to the nature, the busyness of their work and the uncleanness of their work. So priests and Judaism, uh, no, shepherds were not allowed to worship in the temple. So um, they were an excluded bunch. And at the birth of the Savior of the world, we don't have the high and up people shining their stars from their bellies as they adore Jesus. We have those with none upon theirs coming to worship Jesus, the shepherd, the outcast. So Mary doesn't shoo them. Oh, you're going to get my baby sick, infected. Get away. You're going to steal something from me. She receives, she practices hospitality. She lets the shepherds find home there in Jesus. So Elizabeth, Mary, our third character is Simeon. And we look at this in continuing on in chapter two. Verse 22. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written, the law of the Lord, every male who opens first the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, what all that's about is the firstborn from because of Passover in Exodus 12, the firstborn was 
killed in Egypt. In Exodus 13, God demanded that, therefore, the firstborn of Israel shall be dedicated to the Lord. The firstborn belongs to me. So when Jesus here, the firstborn is born, they take him to Jerusalem um, and they make the dedication offering to God. Now, they're supposed to offer an animal, but Mary and Joseph offered turtle doves or pigeons, as Luke says here, the law said. The law made that provision for poor people. So um, very... Uh, this well-known fact that Mary and Joseph were very poor. Jesus was very poor. So God came to earth not as a rich man, but as a poor man. So we see that there. But we continue. That was just setting the scene. Verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. Don't miss this. For my eyes have seen your salvation, Jesus, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles. What? This guy says this in the temple? Words like this ought not to be, Judaism would think. And for the glory to your people, Israel. Simeon sees that Jesus is more for just us. He's for the world. That's crazy. He would even say this in the temple. I don't know if you uh, knew this, but in the temple at the time of Jesus, there was, a, there was an outer wall that went around the temple. It was only about three or four feet high. And there's a plaque on the wall that said, any foreigner, a.k.a. Gentile, who transgresses this boundary will do so at the cost of their life. So there was a wall built to keep Gentiles out of the temple. Now, Josephus records, uh, he was a Jewish historian at the, at the same time period. Josephus records that once a Roman soldier took it upon himself to cross that line and march into the temple, and a riot resulted from the Jews in the temple, and he says, Josephus says, 10,000 people were trampled to death in that riot. That's how crazy they were about keeping foreigners out. Keep it pure. Keep it... Don't contaminate now 10,000 people Josephus was known for exaggerating so take that down a little bit that's probably closer to the truth um yeah so Zimian man, right there in the temple this is for the Gentiles too character number four John the Baptist so chapter two ends with um it flashes forward Jesus is in his teens they come back to Jerusalem for Passover he gets lost well, he doesn't get lost. He knows where he is, but Mary and Joseph lose him. And you guys have heard that story, and we've made many light of jokes about it. How do you lose Jesus? All right, chapter 3, John the Baptist comes on the scene. So we flash forward about 30 or so years. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Ituria and 
Trichochus and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of the Lord came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan River, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it was written in the book of the words of Isaiah, the prophet, this is Isaiah chapter 40. So what Luke is doing is he's telling us that John was the answer to Isaiah's hope in chapter 40, that there will be a voice um, coming one day. And John is that answer. So this is John's purpose. He is the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places become level ways. And as a result of all this, as a result of John's coming, as a result of what he's doing, all flesh, all flesh, no distinction, no ethnicity, no social rank, no morality. All flesh will see the salvation of God. I'm not saying they're all going to participate in the salvation of God, but they're going to see the salvation of God. John the Baptist came with one intentional mission. That I'm going to prepare, prepare the way of the salvation of the Lord in which every flesh will see all flesh will see one day. He's playing the part to paving the way, not just for Israel, but through Israel and out to all the other highways of the world. That's the path he's making. That's the path he's preparing. Now, what's interesting is that he's baptizing Jews. Jews don't get baptized, right? Jews, Jews reserved baptism for Gentiles when Gentiles converted to Judaism. And that did happen. They just had to go through all the, the, customs and circumcision and food laws and stuff. Um, baptism was part of their initiation. So what John the Baptist is doing is actually very bold and insulting in many ways. He's calling out Jews to convert. And the Jews are like, why do we need to convert? We're God's people. They need to convert. But John the Baptist smelled what's up. He says, no, we're not doing things right. We're not being the people God wants us to be. We're exclusive. Come and join the new Israel. Come and join what God's Messiah is going to lead us into. And so he has them reconvert. And what they do is they go into the wilderness and then they come into the Jordan River and they come out and enter back into the promised land. They're, they're mimicking what the wilderness, the exodile Jews did as they came through the wilderness, went through the Red Sea and inherited the promised land. John the Baptist is leading them into the promised land all over again. This is a new Israel. This is a new start. Let's actually take care of what God's given us this time. And then when Jesus comes and is baptized, Jesus is basically announcing, I am that leader, the one who's going to lead us into this new way of living. And Luke then goes on to show us that it's very different than Judaism. So, um, that's John the Baptist. And he, he took that boldness to love the least, last, and lost and say, no, all are welcome. In fact, even the Pharisees need to reconvert themselves. Everybody's at the same base level here. There's no better than or less than. Character number four, Jesus. That's number five. Pardon me. Character number five, best for last, Jesus couple of things we're going to look at here on Jesus. Verse 23 of chapter 3. 
Chapter 3, verse 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, he was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Matat. So there it goes on, a genealogy. Now, look how the genealogy ends. There's all these names. It ends in verse 38 like this. The son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Now, in Matthew chapter 1, we have a genealogy there. And Pastor Mike took you guys to that genealogy. Matthew opens his book that way. And it's, it, it, that genealogy links Jesus all the way back to Abraham. Why Abraham? Because Abraham was the father of Israel. He was the father of the Jews. But in Luke, he takes it yet further back. And he takes Jesus' lineage not just to Abraham, but all the way to Adam. Why Adam? Because Adam is the father of all humanity, not just one exclusive group of people. So Jesus, Luke, is showing us that he came for everybody. Then he's led out into the wilderness in chapter 4. He's tempted. Um, You could have obviously do an entire message there on the temptation, and it's worthwhile. Um, But that's not our purpose tonight. But what I will say about it is that Jesus for 40 days goes into the wilderness in correlation to Israel's 40 years in the wilderness when they were delivered from Egypt. Now, Israel in those 40 years were tested in the wilderness and they failed and failed and failed. That's why it took them 40 years. Um, Jesus was tested in the wilderness and did not fail at all. So to back up to his baptism... I'm going to lead Israel into its new direction. Oh, yeah, are you really? How do we know you're worth following? This is how. I'll take you through the wilderness, and I won't let you down. And he didn't. So that was his test. Jesus is the authentic. He's greater than Moses was, is the point. He is the new Moses, the new leader of Israel. And then in verse 16, chapter 4, verse 16, this is Jesus' first sermon In the book of Luke, if it's Luke's first words for Jesus, first sermon at least, you better pay attention. Here's what he says. Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, his hometown. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. This is Isaiah chapter 61, Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What words? This is Luke identifying for us why Jesus came. I came to set free the captives, to recover the sight of the blind, and to free the oppressed. I came for the least. I came for the last. I came for the lost. Those are who I am here for. Now, when the people hear this, what's their reaction? In verse 20, he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Did you hear what he said? 
He came to exclude, or he came to include the least, the last, and the lost. Can you believe this, Patrick? He came here for us. Yeah, man. And they're all ecstatic. It's for us. We're the last, we're the misfits, and we're going to finally fit. Now, Isaiah 61 originally was writing about, it said there, the year of the Lord's favor. That was another phrase for the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee talked about in Leviticus 25 is that every 50 year event, every 50 years, Israel had the year of Jubilee. And on that special year, everybody who lost their inheritance or their house or their land got it back. And everybody who became a slave because of debt was released from their service. It was the great homecoming, the great liberation day. And so Jesus is really, in a sense, also saying, I came to declare the year of Jubilee for all, forever. And I can see the people, wow, this is fulfilled right now? Who is this guy? What words? They applaud. But verse Look at verse 28. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him down to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. What happened? They're like, whoa, who says these things? Marveling. Whoa, the gracious words. Yay, Patrick, we're saved. And then... Moments later, verses later, let's kill him, push him off the cliff. What happened? This is what happened. Jesus spoke more, which usually happens. People love Jesus until you hear what he actually said. (laughs) Verse 27, um, I'm sorry, verse 25. He continued speaking. Basically, he's applying the message he said about Isaiah 61. This is why I'm here for the least last lost. Like, yeah, that's us. Well, he said, this is what I mean. I'm applying these words now. But but in truth, I tell you, verse 25, there were many widows in Israel in the day of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came all over the land and Elijah was sent to none of the Jews, none of the widows in Israel, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Translation, this woman Elijah went to was a Gentile. Verse 27, And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed. No leper in Israel was cleansed by Elisha. But only Naaman the Syrian. Translation, Elisha only healed Gentile lepers. (laughs) Oh, and to make it worse, that was the captain of the Syrian army who was an enemy to the Israelites. So a Gentile enemy. Then you see verse 28. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. Yay, he came to include us, to save us. No, no, this is what I mean. Gentiles too. What? Get them out of here. That's, that's basically in a nutshell what that was all about. So Jesus is all about the inclusion and the loving and the embracing of the least, last, and lost. The Jews were all for that as long as it meant them and them only. 
don't bring the Gentiles into this. I can't live in a world with Gentiles being equal with us. And now as we go on in our study, especially when we get to the book of Acts, you're going to see this great struggle of the church reconciling the fact that Jews and Gentiles are one and the same in Jesus. And it's going to be a process, but it will get there, right? Puzzle pieces. It's a process, but it will get there. And that's Luke's belief. Luke's belief is that Jesus and his followers, the church, are the ones who will complete the incomplete puzzle. All in due time, of course, but it will be complete. So, what do we have in common with all five of those characters? Apart from the fact that they love the least, last, and lost. What we have in common is the filling of the Holy Spirit. Every single one of those characters who included a misfit was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm running out of time, so I'm not going to run down every passage that shows that to you. But if you reread it, looking for, underline every time it says somebody was filled with the Spirit, the Spirit came upon them. You'll find all five of these characters were affected by the filling of the Holy Spirit. And now look also at the book of Acts, part two of Luke's story. The book of Acts begins with the day of Pentecost and the disciples being filled with the Holy Spirit and the disciples doing things like Jesus did and including outsiders and misfits. Do you see what Luke does is he initiates both Jesus and the church. The way he begins the story of both is that both were filled with the Holy Spirit and to accomplish everything you see amazing in the book of Luke and Acts, all of the embracing and including of misfits, the least, last and lost can only be done And needs to be done with a filling of the Holy Spirit. That Luke wants us to see before we go forward, before we get this, this, you know, fleshly passion and like, yeah, I can do this. He wants us to see that you're not even going to care about the least, last or lost until the spirit enters into you. You're not going to reach out and include them until the spirit enters into you. You're not going to take risks for them and go into the messy situations with them until the Holy Spirit enters into you and fills you. Before even thinking about moving forward into the story, Luke wants to say, make sure you are not filled with yourself, but you are filled with the Holy Spirit. Because when I'm filled with myself, there is no room for another person. When I'm filled with the Spirit, there is room for the whole world. Take the Jesus movement. I don't know. It shows how young I am. What was that? Was that the 70s, 60s? Okay. (laughs) So the reason Calvary Chapel grew and grew and grew was two reasons. The inclusion of hippies whom no other church would include coincided with an amazing outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know which has to come first or if they're both two sides of the same coin, but I would choose that one. That inclusion and the filling of the Spirit are two sides of the same coin. As Ephesians chapter 4 verses 1 and 7 tell us, um, Paul is saying this to the Ephesians, Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. So the Spirit gives you unity and the bond of peace. Then he says this, There's one body, one Spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace. So there's one everything in the spirit, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. 
So we're all unified by the spirit, yet we're all distinguished, diversified, and very different in our very nature. And Paul says this diversity has an amazing unity. And the one thing he's hinging this unity upon is the bond of the spirit of peace through the Holy Spirit. So yeah, two sides of the same coin. Diversity comes with the filling of the spirit. And we have to ask ourselves, are we allowing the spirit to fill us? Is our life welcoming diversity or is it trying to carve everything we see into our image? A world that looks like you is a very idolatrous world. I know people that try to get with other people that don't look like them. And it's a form of exclusion. They try to assimilate their character, their personality into their own. Make them look just like them. I don't think that's the way the Holy Spirit works. I don't think that's the way inclusion of all people works. So we're going to finish with this. Verse 42. 442. And when it was day, Jesus had healed many people. Um, spent all night doing it. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. Stay with us, like hoarding him, right? (laughs) Don't go to other people. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. I must bring everybody in on this. I was sent for this purpose. So there you see Jesus's inclusive heart. But but that's not what stuck out to me as much as it was the the phrase He went into a desolate place. And, you know, that made me think, thinking about exclusion, our difficulties of embracing all people, um, looking at these five characters, the filling of the Holy Spirit. The desolate place made me think of that own undeveloped, uninhabited, desolate wasteland within my own heart. Do you know what I'm talking about? That place you don't even go. That dark place, that undeveloped place. It's uninhabited because it's uninhabitable. It is so closed away with shame and sin and secrets that you yourself hate visiting that desolate place. So what we do is we push all of that to the fringes and we keep at the center everything we're comfortable with, everything we love about ourselves and the people we love. And we keep them all there. Because that's an inhabitable place. Anybody can be here in this part. I'll let them see that. But the uninhabitable place, the desolate place, don't let anybody see that. And I believe that it's this place in our soul that keeps us distant from people. But at the same time, as I think about that place in my heart, It makes me also think about that the world once looked like that. In Genesis 1 verse 2, it says that the earth was formless and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. Depth, you can't even explain. You don't even know what's going on. Formless, void, it's it's what? It's undeveloped. It's uninhabited. 
But the spirit of God, it says, hovered over the waters. And that's when things got going. That's when the uninhabited, the un, the, the, the empty and uninhabited became habited and full. That's when the undeveloped and unfilled became developed, uh, undeveloped and unformed, I mean, became developed and formed. The spirit moved. God spoke form, filling. A new world came out of that. And don't think for a second that the Holy Spirit can't get a hold of your life, penetrate into your formless void place, your desolate place, your undeveloped, uninhabited places and begin to move and begin to work a new creation, a world that is not unformed and unfilled, but that is now formed and fillable, that is now developed and inhabitable. And as the spirit inhabits those parts, you now feel, my goodness, I am a larger person than I ever thought I would. There's more room in my soul than what I have going on here. What I thought was uninhabitable, so I closed people off, is now habitable. So I have an abundance of room for people. That's what it takes for inclusion. The spirit of God taking a person's life and not just like, oh, Holy Spirit, help me now. But Holy Spirit, come and arrest every part of my life. The uninhabited and undeveloped, develop those and inhabit those with other people. Let me become a new creation. Let me, you, spirit, create room, create space within my soul for the misfits that don't belong anywhere. And when individuals around the world make space for the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit makes habitable, their uninhabitable places, we will see more and more connection as we find there's more and more room within ourselves for other people not like ourselves. And the pieces of the puzzle will begin to come together. And the bike that's way over here and the tree that's way over there and the cloud and the cat that are seem to be zoned off and their clustered likenesses Slowly, person at a time, they become connected. The picture becomes complete and the world sees that this is what God created. This is what the people of God are about. That's the power of the Holy Spirit in a person's life. Willing to come into your uncreated, exclusive part of you and make a new creation. One that's meant to be filled and shared and connected with. So... I think what God wants us to do tonight, I think he is inviting you. I think he's inviting me to include those with none upon theirs. The plain-bellied sneeches, the misfits, the outsiders, the least, last, lost. God wants them in your life because the Holy Spirit creates room.